Great. If you could return your attention back to the front, that'd be wonderful. Do stay around for tea and coffee afterwards. It'd be great to get to know you more and especially stay around, go and grab your lunch, come back and join us before we go and walk and pray for our city. But this morning, I want to take you back. Uh, I want to take you back to uh, 1933. The, the threat of uh, Nazi power was growing in Germany. Uh, many were concerned, Christians were concerned, about the compromise of the church with the Nazi movement. That, that Hitler wasn't just after political rule, but he wanted the hearts of German citizens. And this meant control over every area of life, including the church. And instead of standing up against the Nazi regime, many in the church were allowed to be taken over. That instead of bowing the knee to Jesus only, many believers and many church leaders bowed to Hitler. Now that's not to say that every Christian did, and one of those who refused to do so was a man in his late 20s called Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And at the age of 29, Bonhoeffer accepted an invitation to create an underground training center which would train pastors to follow Jesus, to be obedient to him above all things, even the Nazis and Hitler. He was given this large empty house in in a rural town called uh, Finkenwalde in Poland, uh, and he created a training program which centered around doing life together, around prayer, around reading scripture and other spiritual disciplines. Uh, And when his friends heard about what he was doing, many felt that his discipleship was too intense, that those who were being trained would be seen as too extreme to lead churches. And one of his uh, friends, Wilhelm Niesel, he, he traveled to, from Berlin to visit, and he was suspicious at the time that there was too much spiritualism with Bonhoeffer and his friends. And Bonhoeffer took Niesel out for the day on a rowing boat on the Eastern Oder River. And he's, in one of his biographies, the, the scene is described, and this one is by Charles Marsh. When the two rowers reached the far shore, Bonhoeffer led Niesel up to a small hill, to a clearing in which they could see in the distance a vast field and landing, and soldiers moving hurriedly in purposeful patterns, like so many ants. Bonhoeffer spoke of a new generation of Germans in training, whose disciplines were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. It would be necessary, he explained, to propose a superior discipline if the Nazis were to be defeated. You have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. So on one side of the river, there was this bunch of Christians who were seen as crazy. They're trying to follow Jesus and the way of the cross. And on the other side, there was a massive Nazi troops preparing to take on the world. And to quote John Tyson in his book, Beautiful Resistance, he says, what Bonhoeffer was doing in Winkenwalde had had to be stronger than what Hitler was doing with his army. Discipleship must be stronger than cultural formation. Loyalty must be stronger than compromise. This must be stronger than that. The Gestapo would shut down the center in 1937. Bonhoeffer himself would be hung by the Nazi regime in 1945. It looked as though this beautiful resistance was a failure, and yet from those seeds, fruit was born. 
The Nazi regime did fall. The German church repented. And from the ashes, the church in Germany began to grow again. This was stronger than that. Why am I telling you about a pastor who who died nearly 80 years ago? I'm not not started well. Finance update and then the Nazis. (laughs) Why am I telling you? Because I think we're in a moment when compromise could easily be what the church is remembered for future generations. You know, we don't have Hitler and the Nazis to deal with, but we have such strong cultural forces at work. Our current culture is almost unrecognizable compared to a generation ago. When we see how the conversation around sexuality has accelerated over the last five years, when, say, holding pro-life views are seen as a minority, when we see the way the media and even our smartphones have complete control over our emotions, we have to ask, what does following Jesus look like today? Do our lives look any different to those around us? Or have we been swallowed up by the culture of the day? Do we live with strong convictions or do we live in compromise? Because as we live as followers of Jesus, we will stand out. You know, 10 years ago, Christian views were seen as irrelevant. They were outdated. They were maybe to be pitied. Look at those Christians, poor little Christians. But now those same views, our views haven't changed, but now those same views are seen as extreme, dangerous, even abusive. How do we live in a way which is faithful to Scripture? But it's not all doom and gloom, because you see, actually, you will find that living on the edge of culture is where Christians thrive. You see, we are meant to be living in exile. We are citizens of heaven living on earth. The Bible describes us as exiles or or foreigners. Your passport says heaven, but you're on earth living in a different country from the country of your origin. You know, we are followers of Jesus. We are foreigners, exiles, and therefore we should feel like the odd ones out. Because when you are a foreigner in a different land, you have a choice to make. Do I I separate myself from the world around? Do I only spend time with people like me? Or do I embrace the culture, live as everyone else does, look no different to anyone else? Or the third option is that we live in the world, we deal with all the world throws at us, and yet remain distinct. I know which I want to do. And so for this term, we're going to be studying some people who find themselves in exile. Four men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezariah. They are living in a foreign land, and through their experiences and their story, I hope it will help us see what living faithfully in exile looks like. We're going to be looking at the book of Daniel, and so today I'm going to be reading Daniel chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles, just get them. You want to stay there. We're just going to look at the passage. We're going to go through the passage. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he hurried off to the temple of his God of Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, 
show, uh, showing aptitude in every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's surface. Among those were some of the men from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. My family moved to Hull when I was very young. And this week, I worked out that I have been a resident here for 88% of my life. Now, I know I say A differently. I don't say eh. Um, <laughs> but other than that, that's the only thing that makes people think I'm not from Hull. I class myself as a citizen here. I don't know what living in exile looks like. My best guess is that moment when you go to the southern England and you meet people who think that you're basically Leeds, Hull, Newcastle, Manchester. They're basically villages in the same area and you know everybody. That's it. You know, I, I once met someone at a conference in the south of England who said, oh, I've got a friend from Derby. Do you know them? <laughs> I, But actually, in our church community, we have many people who live in this country, but it is not their country of origin. Many here understand what it is to live in a type of exile. I'd encourage you to have conversations with people. Find out what it feels like to come and live in a new place and live as a minority. Let's learn from each other because living as a foreigner brings challenge. Not knowing the custom, the language, the traditions but also having to deal with the challenge of being a minority group. You know, some people get uptight if we talk about and we use the language about white privilege. And they want to point out, but my life hasn't been easy. I've had challenges. But what white privilege is, is it's recognizing that although life may have been challenging, one of those challenges has not been because of the color of your skin. That as a white man in this culture, it's not a level playing field. That there are challenges that I will never face that people of colour will have to face. You know, living as foreigners brings challenge. And so when that comes to our faith, living as Christians should be challenging because we live in a culture where they, which values very different things. The culture of the world will at times, and increasingly a lot of the time, will collide with the culture of the kingdom. And we see this with Daniel. You know, the Babylonian Empire has a strong desire. It wants everyone to assimilate, to become like a Babylonian. You know, the king does this first by selecting the most talented individuals. He says he wants young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And then he educates them in the way of the Babylonians. Three years teaching them literature and the way of the Babylonians. Then the next step to assimilate them is to make them compromise. You know, starting here, he wants to give them the food and drink of the king. But it wouldn't be long, and we'll find this in a few weeks, that the compromise would increase. And it would soon, they would be called to worship idols. Finally, the king renames them. He takes their Hebrew names that are linked to God and he gives them Babylonian names, stripping them of their identity. 
These details we see in the first part of Daniel describes how empires work. That taking foreigners or migrants and making them like us is what empires do. Target the talented. Teach them the language. Demand compromise and then strip them of their identity. You know, as we live in, as exiles, we can expect the empire of the world will demand loyalty even at the expense of our heavenly citizenship. It might not be as obvious as these passages, but there is a constant call for us to compromise as followers of Jesus. You know, people are quite happy for you to attend church, but they don't want you to follow Jesus radically. You know, your family, they're, they're happy with you being generous, but not when you give all your wealth away to those in need. You know, your friends are happy for you to read your Bible, but they don't want you to hold traditional views like caring for the unborn child or biblical sexual ethics. You know, the world is calling us to compromise with its ultimate desire that it can strip us of our identity as citizens of heaven. I'm not saying this to scare you, because I think you know the tension. I think you feel it every day. If you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, you'll have felt that tension. You know, moments when you just think, it would be so much easier if I wasn't a follower of Jesus right now. You ever had that feeling? You know, oh, if only I wasn't a follower of Jesus, I wouldn't have to stand up against that injustice right now. I wouldn't have to lift my head above the, the, the water and say, no, I think this is wrong. You know, those moments when I see everyone else benefiting from things, I just think, that's just not right. I could benefit from that, but I know I shouldn't. That moment when I just want to be selfish and I just want to satisfy my desire for worldly things. Or that moment that you think, I could just be in a relationship with that non-Christian. If I wasn't a Christian, there'd be no issues. And if you're not a Christian here today, this series, I think, is really helpful. Because it is going to present what following Jesus is like. There are many, many blessings. It's great to hear testimonies of, of healing. It's great to hear testimonies of seeing God break through. If you're not a Christian, know that there is blessings in the kingdom. But also know that many challenges. That if you follow Jesus, you will find that the way of the kingdom of God will often clash with the world that we live in. And so this series, we'll be looking at how we live faithfully as exiles in a culture of compromise. But today, I want to look at Daniel's response to the king's request. It says this, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with a royal food or wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord and King who assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of this. Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. Daniel's response. Firstly, we see that Daniel made a decision. It tells us that he resolved not to eat what was given. He spoke to the official and he made this request, asking for special permission. I love Daniel's response because at some, sometimes, just sometimes, Christians, we, can be too dramatic. You know, everything is a spiritual attack. 
You know, oh, my washing machine's broken down, I'm being persecuted. You know, rather than we just, we live in a broken world, things break. You know, rather than thinking actually, oh man, is I'm, a, I'm under spiritual attack. No, no, it's just your sinfulness. It's just, just an evidence. Not, that's not an evidence of the enemy at work. You're just, that's just you being an idiot. You know, because when we are too dramatic, we start to see everything as a work of the enemy. We want to protest about the sin of the world, or at least we want to write really long Facebook posts. Now, sometimes we need to make a noise. Especially in the areas of injustice, we need to be like Jesus who turned the tables over in the temple. But quite often, we simply need to decide to stand firm. Daniel resolved. He quietly made this decision to say no. Nothing dramatic. And in in fact, he's very respectful. He isn't seeking to make enemies or he isn't even seeking to protest in front of the king about how he shouldn't be doing this. Daniel requests permission. He trusts that God will move, and therefore he doesn't need to force the issue. We live in a divided world. Every view has been polarized, and that means quickly people can become enemies. Just go on Twitter if you want to find that out to be true. Let us be known as people of love. We can love people, we can embrace them, and we can be respectful and still hold strong convictions. Daniel's decision makes life hard for him. The food and drink was to fatten them up. It was a sign of wealth and position. Fattened flesh, that's what the the scriptures tell us they were going after. And yet Daniel chooses vegetables and water. Daniel chooses not the easy journey to greatness. You know, we live in a culture which wants ease and availability. We want things as quickly and as easy as we can. We invented fast food. Our TVs are awash with reality TV stars chasing immediate fame. Walk into any bookshop and you'll see stands dedicated to self-improvement. It's like five tips to this or the easy way to that. And we can bring that into our walk with Jesus. We want immediate breakthrough. We are unwilling to give ourselves to discomfort or practices that demand patience. You know, memorizing scripture Fasting, silence and solitude, many other disciplines that were foundational for believers for the last 2,000 years, they are now neglected because they are hard work. They take commitment. They don't promise immediate results. We get frustrated when God, with God when we don't see immediate breakthrough. We refuse to see times of waiting as a chance for God to form us into the person he wants us to be. Following Jesus was never meant to be easy. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24 to 26, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for the sake of mine will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You know, living in exile will be tough at times. It will demand more from us than we thought was possible. Picking up our cross might not mean a a physical death, although for many in other countries it may. But for us, it means a daily death to the ties we have to this world. You know, when we get to the end of our lives, the marker of success is not greatness in the world's eyes, it's faithfulness to God. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Ezariah are faithful in exile. 
And we're going to hear more of their story in the coming weeks, but now let's see how God responds to their faithfulness. Reading from verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, they found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Here, God gives them favor. God gave them learning and skills. He raised them up to be men who have influence. If you know the story of these four men, you'll know that in the coming weeks, they're going to go through some bad things. Their life is going to get a lot worse than this. But throughout it all, there is a trust that God will be faithful to them. Their lives may not turn out as they planned or hoped, But as they choose to follow God, they get to be part of a bigger story. You know, as followers of Jesus, we are part of a bigger story today. I can't promise you that your life will end with blessings, that your life will have influence. But what I can say is that in heaven, the faithful will be able to enjoy the reward of their labor. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Beware of your practices before other people. Sorry, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Daniel and his friends, they are exalted into the king's courts. Many of us won't experience that. But we have a king of kings who will welcome us into his presence. And in that moment, we will realize that every moment of faithfulness was worth it. Every time that we chose conviction over compromise, every time we chose to live faithfully, it was worth it. In life, sometimes we, feel, we will feel like we're, we're with Daniel in the king's courts. Other times we'll feel like we're Dan, with Daniel in the lion's den. Controlling the outcome is not my responsibility. My responsibility is faithfulness. And that means when, good, when there are good gifts from living in this world, when they come along, we enjoy what God has given us. We don't reject everything. We enjoy the good gifts that God bestows on us. But when the moment comes when living as exiles calls for sacrifice, for conviction, it even leads to hardships. We faithfully hold on to Jesus, knowing that he is building his kingdom through every faithful act that his followers are involved in. And today he doesn't call us to be faithful and to faithfulness without being with us. Remember, we have one, we have a saviour who has lived in exile coming down from heaven to earth and living as a foreigner. 
He experienced all the pressure that the world can give, and yet he was still faithful to the call of God, even to the call to go to the cross. He is now seated on a throne, and he is with us. And he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit to equip us to live faithfully. This call to exile is not one to scare us. It is the one to say, God is partnering with us as we faithfully serve him and see his kingdom advance.